And so, so what is the unaborted Socrates about? Uh, Socrates talking to a, a doctor who aborts abortion. people yeah. trying to figure out if it's murder. Right, right, exactly. So, so Peter Kraft, he's the guy who wrote the best things in life. He wrote this too. And he, writ, he wrote this as an attack on the pro-abortion and pro-choice thinking that is so prevalent in our world today. And the unaborted Socrates is attacking uh, pro-abortion thinking from the same natural law perspective that the best things in life was written in. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. Bad thing. Not good. Right. And, and just like the best things in life, this book is written from the, that form of the Socratic dialogues. It's written in the same way between this modern-day Socrates and different characters who defend abortion. And so although the book is on the right side of the argument, uh, he's on the right side of the issue, it poses the same biblical problems that we saw in The Best Things in Life. And so Peter Kreft uh, wrote this, and he he also wrote this to say this. He says he wrote the uh, unaborted Socrates to, quote, strip away the emotional issues and get to the heart of the rational objections to abortion. That's why he wrote it. Uh, Abortion is a very emotionally charged issue. He wanted to get around that, and let's get to the rational arguments and the rational objections to abortion. And abortion has been a major ethical issue in the United States ever since the American church has began to partially wake up from the sleep uh, on this issue since Roe v. Wade was... uh, first legalized abortion in the United States in 1973. So the church is kind of waking up to that. And, uh, and now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, right? Uh, it was overturned last year. And it's no longer legal, at least uh, as far as the federal government is concerned, to have surgical abortions. So the federal government has said it's illegal to have surgical abortions. Uh, so does that mean, yay, victory's won? We're done. No, not at all. It's unfortunate because because um, <clears throat> uh, that doesn't mean that abortion is illegal everywhere in the United States. All of this, all that the Supreme Court did was to turn the legalization of abortion over to the individual states to decide for themselves. And some states favor it, and others don't. Uh, does Louisiana favor it, or does it not? No, it, it does not favor abortion. So, uh, so this uh, abortion, surgical abortion at least, is outlawed uh, in this state. But not every state shares that. And, and uh, Roe v. Wade, this reversal of Roe v. Wade, only covers surgical abortions, abortions by surgery. Uh, it doesn't cover chemical abortions using pills and drugs to kill and abort babies. And so... And now, because surgical abortion has been outlawed, now that growing industry of chemical abortions is growing rapidly each and every day. And that's because the culture of death is still alive and well in the hearts of the people of America. Uh, and there, there isn't going to be any laws that are going to save people from loving death and killing their babies. Uh, only regeneration can do that. Only, uh, only Christ can do that. And so this issue is still really important to talk about. And Peter Kreft uses the Socratic dialogue to explore and to undermine the modern arguments in support of abortion. 
And so it's important to put the abortion problem in uh, historical perspective. So violence and disrespect for human life uh, was a common part of the ancient pagan cultures of death. So in Rome, in Greece, uh, violence and disrespect for human life was a common part of their lives. And so power and violence, rather than love and service, ruled these pagan societies that oppressed slaves. They had slavery. Uh, They oppressed the poor. They took advantage of them. And they oppressed children uh, by putting them into slavery and killing them like it was no big deal. And so the Greek and Roman world showed that they hated life and all of the wars that they fought. You notice, if you've been reading a lot of Greek and Roman literature, you notice they fight a lot, right? They fight like all the time. Yeah, that's, that, that's because of their worldview. They hated life, and they showed that they hated life. And all of the wars they fought, all of the crucifixions they performed, including the crucifixion of, of our Lord, all of the tortures they performed, all of the infanticides and the abortions committed, they show that they hate life. Now, y'all know what infanticide means, right? Infanticide. Somebody tell me. Uh, kill, yes, the killing of infants. Right, the killing of babies. And so even the ancient world even tried, they sometimes sacrificed children for religious purposes to their gods in order to manipulate them or to appease them in some way. And so killing babies for personal or social purposes happened all the time in those societies. It was a common part of life. And uh, what we would call lifestyle abortions uh, was common among the rich who didn't want to share their wealth with a bunch of children. And abortions were also done among the poor who thought they couldn't support a large family. So in ancient Greece, and and especially in ancient Rome, abortion and infanticide were common practices at every level of society. Uh, One of the widespread methods of infanticide in ancient Greece and Rome was called exposure. Exposure. And exposure was simply, you know, they have the baby and they leave the baby out in the woods to die. Like to just expose them to the elements. It's very sad. It's very tragic. And uh, one modern scholar said this about the Greeks. Says, uh, quote, the Greeks enjoy the dubious distinction of being the first in the West positively to advise and even demand abortion in certain cases, end quote. And, and that's, a, that's a mark of pride uh, for our moderns today. Oh, look, the Greeks were the first to do this. The Greeks were such a noble and such an intelligent society. And they were admittedly pro-choice and pro-abortion. So, so we should follow in their footsteps, too. Uh, in Plato's Republic... Uh, Plato requires abortion for all women who conceive after 40 years old. So if, if a woman gets pregnant at 40 years old or older, in Plato's Republic, in his mind, uh, that woman should seek an abortion. You have to seek an abortion. It would be unlawful to have that baby. Uh, despite believing that the unborn child is a human being, Plato considered the state's needs and the state's ideals more important than the life of the unborn child. So the collective man is more important than the needs of that individual child. And we'll do it the why. Hmm? Why would they need it 
Well, because, like you had said, if if uh, if you have a if a woman has a baby past forty years old, there's a higher chance of birth defects and and uh, overpopulation and all of those sorts of things. And so, uh, in order to control the population and to uh, have the population not uh, get out of control and uh, eat eat all the food and waste up all the resources, it would be better that these women over 40 stop having babies. And if they do, we have to require them to get an abortion. Um, <clears throat> so, because Plato, the reason Plato thought that is because he was a statist. He believed that the state is God on earth, not Jesus Christ. So that's the main thing. Um, so, uh, so Plato supported early eugenics. Uh, Plato uh, or Aristotle, his uh, student, also required abortion or exposure in certain circumstances. Uh, Aristotle argued that the state needs to regulate marriage and they have to limit the number of children and destroy weaker or deformed children and pregnancies that go beyond the limit of the maximum number of children to be born to a woman must be aborted. And he says, no deformed child shall be raised. So both Plato and Aristotle believed that children existed only for the sake of the state and they had no right to life in and of themselves. Now that's Greece. Rome wasn't any better. Uh, In Rome, abortion and infanticide increased over the centuries and by the first century BC, it was widespread. Uh, The earliest Roman code, the 12 tables, that allowed fathers to expose any female or deformed babies. And although Cicero formally criticized this whole practice of abortion in the Roman Republic, both pagan and later Christian writers tell us that the abortions occur regularly both among the rich and the poor. It happened among the free people. It happened among the slaves. It happened among the old and the young all throughout the duration of the Roman Empire. And when Augustus became Caesar during the time of Christ, he realized, wait a minute, I need to build a strong state. And he thought that strengthening the family and promoting children instead of discouraging children would help him strengthen the empire. But his reforms, even though he supported the family, he was pro-family, he never made abortion illegal. And abortion still flourished under uh, under his rule because it was less visible than infanticide, right? Infanticide is a very visible thing. You can literally hear babies crying in the night, in the woods, stuff like that. Uh, abortion was a more private thing. It can be dealt with in behind closed doors. And so abortion was common. It wasn't common just among the poor. It was common even at the highest levels of the empire, uh, you read in your introduction that about uh, Domitian, the, the emperor Domitian. He got his niece, Julia, pregnant, right? And this was never supposed to happen. And so what did he do? He forced her to have an abortion. And, uh, and Julia died because of this botched abortion. It didn't go well, right? So it's only through the growth and the influence of Christianity in the empire did Rome eventually outlaw abortion. And during the first three centuries of the church, the Christian witness against abortion was strong and it was practically unanimous. Uh, That witness concentrated on three important themes. That number one, the unborn in the womb is the creation of God. That's where they started. 
So then, therefore, it went to number two. Abortion is murder. It has to be. If the unborn in the womb is a creation of God and is a child, is a person, and one of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill, then that tells us that abortion is murder. Right? And number three, God judges those who have abortions. And so the earliest Christian writings after the New Testament uniformly prohibit and condemn abortion and infanticide. And uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, it's not a biblical book, but it is an early Christian book, says that God damns both husbands and wives who are guilty of abortion. And so the Apocalypse of Peter understood abortion as the murder of a human being. And the first church body to enact punishment for abortion was the Council of Elvira in A.D. 305. So 19 bishops all over Spain met to decide uh, several important issues, uh, one of those including uh, punishments for abortion. Uh, There was a larger council of uh, Ancrea. They met in 314 A.D. in Asia, Asia Minor, and they also authorized punishments for abortions. See, it was only through Christianity that abortion became outlawed. Uh, And later on, during the 4th and 5th centuries A.D., five major church fathers, Basil, Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, and John Chrysostom, all of them condemned abortion. And the church's position from that time on was pretty much set for the next 1,500 years up until today. So all of Christendom condemned abortion and infanticide until very recently. And on the heels of going along with the Darwinian evolution myth that has come up in the mid-19th century, uh, in much of Europe, even now, uh, it was and still is in an advanced stage of apostasy. It was countries in Europe, these apostatized nations, that first uh, re-legalized abortion in the latter half of the 20th century. So as uh, a nation uh, wanders away from God we can start to see some of these old pagan sins creep back into the cultures of these nations, including abortion. You know, if you don't love the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus Christ, then you're going to love the way of death. And that's seen in the legalization of abortions in all of these countries. And then what happened? As Europe goes, seems as Europe goes, America goes, right? So America soon followed. Uh, when the Supreme Court legalized abortion in 1973. And uh, you would think the church would have said something about this, right, in the 70s. But to its shame, not one major evangelical church, not one major institution or Christian spokesman, spokesman publicly opposed or condemned the Supreme Court's decision at the time. That's pretty awful. What an indictment on the church. And uh, it took many years for a small minority uh, in the church to begin serious opposition to this now well-established abortion industry. And, uh, you know, praise God that... uh, that uh, this was overturned last year. Um, it's, it was a, it's a good step in the right direction, but we still have a lot of work to do because our culture still loves death. And they still abort their babies. They just don't do it surgically. Or they travel to other states in the Union who do support surgical abortion, and they go there and have it done. 
And so The Unaborted Socrates is still a very important book to read for that reason. And it's challenging and it's entertaining. It's interesting. Uh, they, he analyzes the modern abortion issue uh, in the form of, of this Socratic dialogue. Now, I've already talked in a previous lecture about what that is, so I'm not going to go into it again here. But I will say that a strength of, uh, in Peter Kreft's approach is his use of logic to undermine the assumption of these modern, unbiblical arguments in support of abortion. But to me, unfortunately, the unaborted Socrates implies that we can determine, once again, right and wrong, uh, even the right and wrong of abortion, through our own reasoning abilities. And we don't need God, and we don't need his law to figure things out. Right? That's a huge problem. You see, because it's only when we submit to God and uh, we submit to God as our ultimate authority can we determine and know that abortion is wrong and we can know why it's wrong. And because Peter Kreft doesn't acknowledge God or, and he doesn't acknowledge his word as his ultimate authority in these Socratic dialogues, he can't clearly establish or prove that a fetus is a person and that abortion is therefore murder. He can't do that. So that's a huge flaw. But interesting to read nonetheless, and we get to see kind of how a, a classicist will uh, try to argue against abortion. And so, who are our main characters in this book? Who have you guys ran into so far? Socrates. Dr. Rex Herod. Okay. He, who is Rex Herod? He's an abortion doctor. He runs an abortion clinic. Right. Um, who else? There's the pop, pop psych. Pop psych, yes. Pop psych. Who else? Another funny name in there. Attilitarian. Attilitarian. Yeah. So y'all notice the funny allusions with these characters' names, right? Herod the abortionist. Rex, Herod, what's Rex mean in Latin? King. King, King Herod. That sounds like King Herod from the Bible, who was the ultimate baby killer, uh, who he attempted to kill baby Jesus in Bethlehem as he killed all of the boys younger than two years old in the town. Um, so Rex, Herod, we have Attilitarian. Uh, what, who does that reference? Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun. Um, what's up with Tarian? Attilitarian. Uh, Sounds like the word utilitarian, utilitarian. Yeah, and why is why did he put that in there? Well, it, mem a lot of people think that this is uh, abortion is a utilitarian thing that that women have this right to choose, and we must have this mode of health care in order for women to be healthy. So there's a utilitarian uh, ethic to this. And so that's one reason that uh, Peter Kreft named this guy utilitarian. Of course, you're, he's trying. He's a, he's trying to say that utilitarianism is, uh, or uh, being a barbarian is utilitarian. That doesn't make any sense, which is why it's kind of ironic. And then we have Pop Psych, uh, who uh, always alludes to modern psychology, and to me, he always gets a, a royal beatdown every time he talks to Socrates. And so, <clears throat> now going back to King Herod for a minute, 
Uh, there are very few people in our society that would read about King Herod in the Bible and condone what he did, right? Having, little, having Roman soldiers enter everybody's house uh, in Bethlehem and break the necks of little boys and stab these little boys through the hearts with the points of their short swords. I don't think anybody would say, good job, King Herod, right? But many, many more people have been killed each month since 1973 up until recently with our government's approval. The government has approved this. Many, many more babies, millions upon millions of babies, way more than King Herod could have ever killed. Our government has sanctioned and allowed uh, in this country to, uh, to kill. Why is that? They're, because their reason is, is because they are inside of the womb instead of outside. So they're fair game if they're inside of the womb. So why is this happening? And how did our society come to routinely accept this heinous behavior? And why does the unaborted Socrates not make a more powerful case that abortion is wrong? Look, there are a lot of factors that influence why we have become an abortion culture. But these factors all have in common a more aggressive rejection of the gospel by many outside the church and a failure of obedience and faith from those inside of the church. And again, the weakness of the unaborted Socrates uh, case against abortion results from its reliance upon natural law than uh, relying upon the power of biblically-based arguments. Okay? Natural law ethics, natural law arguments are impotent in their power to be able to prove that abortion is wrong. Um, and, and Socrates vaguely hints at, but never actually acknowledges or addresses the real heart of the abortion problem. And what's the real heart of the abortion problem? What? It's against God's law. It's a failure to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ as our ultimate authority in life and ethics. So Socrates, he assumes that we can naturally find the right way to live by simply focusing on sound reasoning. Sound reasoning. What's the problem with that? Right, so but, so we cannot get so we can't get there on sound reasoning. Why is what? Why do you think that is? I know what you're saying, but what's wrong with our reasoning? It's sinful. It's flawed. It's sinful. Yeah, sin sin has tainted it. It's it's not truly uh, uh, it, it's not truly unimpeded by sin. That's right. Um, we, he also fails to acknowledge that uh, we are not neutral seekers after the truth. We can't just be neutral and totally objective on the, the sides of the argument. In fact, unbelievers, consciously or unconsciously, they are rebelling against God and for their own good need to be lovingly confronted with his truth. You know, to tell an unbeliever to follow his own reason wherever it leads, as Socrates tells us, rather than submitting their reasoning to Christ, who only he can renew the mind and save the unbeliever from futile thinking, that only reinforces the unbeliever's 
chief delusion that he is ultimately the determiner of right and wrong about moral issues like abortion. We are not the determiners of right and wrong. God is. So we cannot leave that decision in the hands of man to figure out. And so God requires believers to be obedient to him, not only in following the truth, but also in how we argue for the truth. So fighting abortion is part of our spiritual warfare. God instructs to wage that warfare using the weapons that God has given us uh, to pull down strongholds and to cast down pro-abortion arguments that exalt man's authority over God's authority. So first, what we want to do is when we engage in these sorts of things is undermine the pro-abortionist position by showing him why his pro-abortion worldview is arbitrary and it's self-defeating. And then once we do that, we can confront him with the necessary and inevitable authority of God's word for all of life. And we can tell them what God says about abortion. And to me, the unaborted Socrates does a pretty good job of showing the arbitrariness and the contradictory thinking of pro-abortionists. But to me, he fails, Kreff fails to show the root cause, which is the failure to submit to God's authority in determining the truth about abortion. And so Socrates' failure to lead his dialogue partners to the source of truth is a consequence is of his unbiblical view of God and man. And uh, since the unaborted Socrates addresses this really important issue, we have to step back and remember what God told us about the connection between morality and our relationship with him. So can morality be separated from God and our relationship with him? No, it can't. True moral goodness is a personal act. It's not an impersonal act. It's personal. Uh, it's, an, it's a personal attitude in response to the kindness that the Lord gives us. And that, in turn, receives God's blessing. And it's only in the triune God of the Bible where the, that's the only authority. That's the ultimate authority in ethics. Uh, he, and he has this ultimate authority in all other areas of life as well. And it's really sad that many Christians over the years have not understood this basic truth. And for far too long... Uh, American Christians have falsely assumed that what Christians believe about right and wrong is what any right-thinking person, Christian or not, also believes about right and wrong. It can't be that way. And because we live in a sinful world where unbelievers sometimes look like they're doing good, uh, they assume that morality is somehow separate or apart from salvation or religion. Uh, But we all know, as we've studied before, appearances can be deceiving, right? Uh, Just because it looks like someone is doing a good act, they may not be, right? Because they have to, uh, there's biblical criteria uh, to show us what makes a good work, right? And so morality and our relationship with God, those things are inseparable. And, And because God made us whole people, We're whole people. Our lives cannot be chopped up into separate categories that don't affect each other. Right? So right outward moral action requires corresponding right intent and attitude from our hearts inside us. And although unbelievers, thanks to God's grace and restraining sin, do sometimes conform outwardly to God's law, 
Uh, but their actions still fall short of true morality because they don't have the right motives and they don't have the right goals for their actions. And so Christians who in sin fail to have right motives and goals also fall short of God's moral requirements for good works. And so when Christians unbiblically separate ethics from their faith, one of two things happens. Okay? They either don't apply the right biblical standard or, uh, in arguing on believers, or they, when they do, they defend the right standard in the wrong unbiblical way. Uh, that is, they base their arguments for the right standard on some authority other than God. Uh, in his word, and they think unbelievers are going to submit to those things, uh, things like reason, like science or tradition. And in doing that, they unwittingly mislead the unbeliever by reinforcing his false view that the triune God of the Bible is not the authority for all ethics. So Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and he and his word must be the highest authority that we go to. Uh, for any thinking about our lives.